0: Nine stories in height made of reinforced concrete. The federal building located in downtown Oklahoma City was named after beloved Sooner native, Alfred P. Murrah. Specializing in workers' compensation and personal injury law, Murrah was appointed to the federal bench by FDR in 1937 at the age of 32. The building itself opened in 1978, and by 1995 it housed offices for the Social Security Administration, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Secret Service, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. It also housed the Veterans Counseling Center, a military recruitment office, and a daycare center. At 9:02 a.m. on April 19, 1995, in the worst act of domestic terrorism in the history of this country, a bomb carried in a Ryder truck exploded in front of the Murrah Federal Building. The Oklahoma City bombing killed 168 people and wounded hundreds more. Among the dead were 19 children, 19 children. A homegrown war decorated American terrorist named Timothy McVeigh drove and parked in a handicap zone in front of the building, a rider truck packed with explosives containing approximately 7,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate fertilizer and diesel fuel. For comparison purposes, the truck bomb used at the Sterling Hall bombing in 1970 at UW Madison was filled with close to 2,000 pounds of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. At a young age, McVeigh drew inspiration from the 1978 novel, The Turner Diaries, written by the white nationalist William L. Pierce, which depicted a right-wing insurrection against a tyrannical federal government seeking to deprive citizens of their right to bear arms. But three recent events seem to fuel his resentment and reinforce his conviction that it was time to take direct action. The federal raid in August 1992 on the home of Randy Weaver, a white separatist in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. The standoff in Waco between the Branch Davidians and federal agents, in which at least 75 people perished in the final conflagration, and the passage of the Brady Gun Control Bill. In particular, the events in Waco haunted him leaving him angry and agitated. He identified with the Branch Davidians and Waco became an obsession. He believed that with Waco, here it was at last, the final nightmare. No man in America is safe in his own home. He told people that the federal government had intentionally murdered people at Waco. They murdered the Davidians at Waco. He described the incident as the government's declaration of war against the American people. From the day that the FBI raided the compound to end the siege at Waco, April 19th, 1993, two years to the date prior to the Oklahoma City bombing, it was the specter that accompanied McVeigh everywhere he went for two years on the fake driver's license he used to rent the rider truck for his mission in Oklahoma City McVeigh listed April 19th as his birth date and the timestamp on the rider truck rental read 4 19 while April 19th, should be a day of celebration as it is in Boston, memorializing the opening salvos fired in Lexington and Concord in 1775. It is now a day of infamy, standing right behind December 7th and September 11th. Bonjour and Venue. Hello and welcome to Meyer Fun Facts. I'm Steve Meyer, and this is our second episode of Season 2. Meyer Fun Facts dares to ask the question Who needs Google when you have Steve Meyer? On a personal note, I have really enjoyed getting your comments, suggestions, and topic requests at MeyerFacts at gmail.com. Keep them coming. Remember, you can subscribe to Meyer Fun Facts for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. A brief programming note on today's podcast. The timing and topic for this podcast was chosen months ago. Its preparation was in the works well before the ex president decided to have his recent rally at Waco. The symbolism and rhetoric at that rally is not lost on me. And after you finish this podcast, I believe and hope that you will feel likewise. The common theme of violence directed at the government, law enforcement and fellow citizens that permeated throughout the rally is unsettling and disturbing to say the least. Consequently, This podcast is more somber and lacks the musing that typically occurs. Now, let's get on to our topic, the Waco Siege of 1993. No matter how you slice it, the story of the siege at Waco in 1993 begins and ends with David Koresh born in 1959 in Houston, Texas, as Vernon Wayne Howell. In 1981, he joined the Branch Davidians, a religious sect which had eventually settled about 10 miles outside of Waco. The physical home of the Branch Davidians was a 77-acre tract of land which contained a large administrative facility which included a chapel, dormitories, and other buildings. It was known as Mount Carmel, named after the biblical mountain in northern Israel. Sanctified since early times, the biblical Mount Carmel is identified and referred to as a holy mountain in Egyptian records as early as the 16th century BC. In 1983, Koresh began claiming the gift of prophecy and had an affair with the then lead Branch Davidian prophetess, Lois Roden, who was at the time in her late 60s. When she died, a power struggle began between Koresh and Roden's son, George. Losing that struggle, Koresh retreated with his followers to eastern Texas. In late 1987, he returned to Mount Carmel dressed in camouflage with seven male followers armed with various weapons, including 223 caliber semi-automatic assault rifles, 12-gauge shotguns, and nearly 400 rounds of ammunition. During the following gunfight, Roden was shot in the chest and hands but recovered. Koresh and his followers went on trial for attempted murder. The seven were acquitted and a mistrial was declared in Koresh's case. Koresh told the jury he and his men went to Mount Carmel to find evidence of corpse abuse by Roden, and their shots were directed away from civilians. By 1990, Koresh had become the leader of the Branch Davidians and legally changed his name, saying on the court documentation that the change was for publicity and business purposes. He said the switch arose from his belief that he was now head of the biblical House of David. Koresh is a Hebrew transliteration of Cyrus, the name of the Persian king who allowed the Jews held captive in Babylon to return to Israel. Koresh's teachings included the practice of spiritual weddings, which enabled him to bed God-chosen female followers of all ages. Koresh fathered at least a dozen children with members other than his legal wife including those who happened to be underage. As leader of the Branch Davidians, Koresh claimed he had cracked the code of the seven seals in the book of Revelation, which predicted events leading to the apocalypse. He told his followers that the Lord willed the Davidians to build an army of God As a result, they started stockpiling weapons. The book of Revelations is the last biblical book of the New Testament of the Bible. And the result of opening the first four of the seven seals is the appearance of the four horsemen who bring forth the apocalypse. They are well known to us as the Antichrist, war, famine, and death. The stockpiling of weapons at the compound brought scrutiny from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Beginning in May of 1992, ATF's investigation centered on Koresh and the Davidians being involved in the illegal manufacture and possession of machine guns and the illegal manufacture and possession of destructive devices including bombs and grenades. The volume of weaponry was staggering, including by example, large quantities of AR-15 rifles, over 200,000 rounds of ammunition, and even grenade launchers. ATF obtained both a judicially authorized arrest warrant for Koresh and a search warrant for the compound. On February 28th, 1993, more than 70 ATF agents went to the compound to execute the warrants. Unfortunately, a 1996 follow-up report by the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee in conjunction with the Committee on Government Reform and Oversight, found that while the warrants may have met the minimal standard of constitutional sufficiency, the affidavit supporting the warrants contained numerous misstatements of fact, misstatements of law, and the misapplication of the law to the facts and serves as a de facto record of a poorly developed and mismanaged investigation. The Davidians were alerted to the impending raid by a local postman who was also a cult member. The heavily armed cult members were waiting in ambush as the agents unloaded from their vehicles. Koresh was outside on the porch as the agents approached telling him they had a search warrant and while instructing him to get down, he retreated inside the house and gunfire burst through the door. A two and a half hour long gunfight ensued, with four ATF agents being killed, 20 ATF agents wounded from gunshots or shrapnel, and six Davidians reportedly dying. A ceasefire followed, and Koresh released 24 Davidian members, mostly children but none of his own from the compound. When we come back, the 51-day siege begins and ends. <music> Nearly 900 law enforcement officials subsequently descended on the compound, including FBI hostage negotiators. During this 51 day period, a Meyer not so fun fact occurred. While at the local federal building speaking to local DEA agents who had expressed frustration at not being assigned to Waco because that is where the action was. In a prescient moment, I told them that it wouldn't be so fun when dead bodies would have to be recovered. I recall that they forlornly agreed. During phone calls with FBI negotiators, Koresh engaged in Bible babble and threatened violence, though he stated that neither he nor his followers were suicidal. Partly in exchange for various supplies, including milk that was delivered in cartons with listening devices, Koresh allowed more than 30 followers to leave. However, it was thought that some 100 remained in the compound. As talk stalled, at one point Koresh said that he would surrender if one of his sermons was broadcast on national radio. But then failed to do so when it aired. Agents tried various strategies, including turning off the compound's electricity, playing Tibetan chants over loudspeakers, and shining spotlights on the complex to disrupt disrupt sleep. Convinced that Koresh would not surrender, then US Attorney General Janet Reno gave permission for the FBI to raid the complex. It should be noted that the siege was well underway when Reno had only been confirmed as attorney general on March 12th and got her first briefing on the matter on March 15th. At approximately 6 a.m. on April 19th, 1993, the FBI began spraying tear gas into the complex. Shortly thereafter, the Branch Davidians began firing weapons. For more than five hours, armored vehicles, some of which punched holes into walls, deposited 400 tear gas canisters inside the compound. At 1140 a.m., the assault ended. Some 25 minutes later, the Branch Davidians set several fires and at 1225 PM gunfire was heard inside the compound. Due to safety concerns, firefighters were not allowed into the area for another 15 minutes, by which time the compound was beyond saving, totally engulfed in flames. While nine people managed to escape, the rest died. Investigators ultimately found 75 bodies, 25 of which belonged to children. A number of the deceased have been fatally shot, including Koresh. While some of the wounds appeared to be self inflicted, others did not. When we come back, the epilogue. Before we get the epilogue, I want to give a quick shout out to Tiplock Home Services. Now that snow removal season is behind us, don't forget to call Dan or Brock at 608-575-7044 for help in handling any springtime and summer projects. As I mentioned earlier, a review of federal law enforcement's actions at Waco was initiated and conducted by Congress and other entities, including the Department of Justice. In August 1999, documents were uncovered which indicated that during the raid on the Branch Davidian compound the FBI used an extremely limited number of flammable tear gas canisters. This revelation contradicted assertions of the FBI and the Department of Justice that the government had done nothing that could have contributed to the start or spread of the fire. Independent investigators had determined that that at least three fires broke out around the same time on April 19th. Skeptics pointed to the timing as evidence that the fires were started by FBI tear gas canisters. In response, Attorney General Reno appointed a special counsel, former Republican Senator John Danforth, to reexamine the assault to determine how the fire started and whether there was a cover-up of information implicating law enforcement officials or the Justice Department. On July 21st, 2000, after a 10-month investigation, Danforth issued a report exonerating the government and its agents. His report concluded that federal agents did not start the fire, direct fire at the complex, or improperly employ U.S. Armed Forces. Danforth assigned responsibility for the tragedy to the Branch Davidians and David Koresh. According to the report, they contributed to the tragedy by refusing to exit the compound during the 51 days standoff, directed gunfire at FBI agents, shooting members of the compound, and ultimately setting the fire that burned the compound down. Danforth's conclusion was consistent with a 1993 DOJ report that the fires were found to be set inside the compound. That is, that they were started by the Branch Davidians themselves. Danforth did find, however, that an FBI agent fired three pyrotechnic tear gas rounds at a concrete pit 75 feet from the living quarters of the compound. Although these rounds did not start the fire, government officials did not admit to their use until August, 1999, more than six years later. And Danforth found that this negligence was at best a mishandling of evidence and at worst, a criminal con- attempt to conceal the truth from investigators. A Meyer fun fact relates to McVeigh's obsession of the shootout at Ruby Ridge. On August 31, 1992, white supremacist Randy Weaver surrendered after an 11-day standoff at his cabin at Ruby Ridge, Idaho. It began on August 21st, when deputies of the United States Marshals Service came to arrest Randy Weaver under a bench warrant after his failure to appear on, you guessed it, federal firearms charges. An initial exchange of gunfire left Weaver's 14-year-old son and a U.S. Marshal dead. Federal authorities then laid siege to Weaver's cabin for 11 days, during which an FBI sniper wounded Weaver and family friend Kevin Harris and killed Weaver's wife, Vicki. In November of 1991, this same special team of U.S. Marshals provided security for a week-long trial that I was involved in. As a matter of fact, I was assigned my own personal bodyguard to protect me from my own client. He also happened to be an ex-US Navy SEAL. One of the highlights occurred right at the start of trial when he requested me to use a felt tip pen rather than a ballpoint when making notes. The request was made poignant by his observation that my client would just as soon stick the ballpoint in my neck as anything else, and that although he, meaning the U.S. marshal, was fast, he wasn't that fast. The quality and professionalism exhibited that week by this team of U.S. Marshals was beyond reproach. That concludes this episode of Meyer Fun Facts. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you'll be back next week. As I anticipate, our production department will have something special for you. To make sure you never miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can email me topic suggestions and comments at MeyerFacts at gmail.com and you can get my random thoughts on my Twitter page at myerfunfacts. A quick reminder that any fact labeled as a Meyer Fun Fact does not have guaranteed accuracy. Until next week, take care.